Hey everyone, this is the first episode that's just me, no guests, and so I will be your expert for the day. Hope that's okay. I've been wanting to put this episode out for some time now. It is probably the most important piece of information that will have a profound impact on your business if you are selling personal care products, um, skincare, and other topicals such as CBD topicals. It's time to talk about the FDA and guidelines for cosmetic products. I will put out other episodes later for FDA labeling guidelines and product claims, but I need to share the hot potato topic, which is the new cosmetic act that's about to slap us all in the face. Let's get into it. Welcome to Making It to Market, the podcast where we discuss everything about taking your product or service idea through to commercialization. I'm your host, Dahlia Collada. Before we go into details, let's start with some basic definitions. While many people think of cosmetics as strictly makeup, it's not. So you're probably thinking, well, I'm not selling cosmetics. Well, most likely you are. According to the FDA, a cosmetic product essentially means anything that goes on the human body, whether that be personal care, such as shampoo and conditioner, shaving balm, or other grooming products, nail polish, body wash, and lotions, and even the topical non-OTC ointments, such as CBD balm. Tattoo inked aftercare, clay masks, lip plumpers, natural deodorants, perfume, anti-aging products, and yes, of course, makeup are all considered cosmetic. There are some product categories that can kind of sit on the fence between cosmetic and drug, such as toothpaste and deodorant that have antiperspirant properties that usually contain aluminum, but we're not talking about OTC today. We're only going to talk about cosmetics, which is most likely what you guys are making. Pretty much if it goes on the outside of your body and is not considered an OTC, it's considered a cosmetic. So this episode is a mandatory listen if you are selling cosmetics or manufacturing. And yes, all of my hemp customers, this will apply to you. As you know, I am a natural cosmetic formulator and manufacturer and have been in business for 11 years this month. As a company that started off making topical medicines and been wanting to take my products to the masses, it was essential to substantiate the claims that I wanted to make. So in order for this to happen, I had to register my company as a drug manufacturer with the FDA, along with the seven OTCs that I was manufacturing at the time. I had no mentors or help, which pretty much means I had to learn the hard way and became FDA OTC street smart, if you will. (laughs) I learned to understand the drug monograph process, drug registration, product labeling, and more importantly, the product branding language around making claims, and of course, the attorney world and the process of FDA being FDA investigated or audited. Well, I'm sure you've noticed that the FDA is calling out brands over the years, you know, for misbranding. Well, that's a term that the FDA really likes, misbranding, and I'll talk about that in just a second. But this basically means claiming that the product does something without doing things the right way, which means to register your product and label the product appropriately, be compliant, making sure you're within the parameters of active ingredients and so forth. Uh, Well, there is some news to share with you that you may not have heard about yet, but you most certainly will in the fourth quarter of 2023. Yep, that's this year. That's like in a couple months. You see, the Federal 
Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that was adopted in 1938 here in the United States was ultimately to enforce consumer safety. And that's what it's been till today. But there's been no regulation for cosmetics. But it seems as though, you know, arguably that the effort has been focused more on pharmaceuticals and OTCs. And of course, general adverse event reporting for cosmetics. As an example, hair straightening products, there's been a lot of complaints from consumers about you know, cancer or, I mean, I've heard people dying from this, formaldehyde in hair straightening products. So that became a big you know, awareness by the FDA and they started investigating these products. Um, while formaldehyde was at that time listed as an ingredient, uh, right now, some of those brands are still creating formaldehyde. When you, when you start combining ingredients, there is formaldehyde reaction. So that's another problem, formaldehyde. But again, these complaints are only made to the FDA by consumers. Think about the latest band on talc that came from things like baby products and makeup. They didn't have substantiated safety evaluation. So when it comes to OTCs, it seems that the FDA has been really hard-pressed to call out cosmetic brands who are making those claims of being drugs, and as they should, because nothing is really, uh, there's been no requirements for cosmetic brands and manufacturers to comply with anything, really. Meaning there's been no accountability of the manufacturer or the brand to prove their products are being made according to GMP. There's been no requirements for reporting adverse events like there has been for OTC and pharmaceuticals. There's been no requirement to prove the ingredients are safe and not contaminated. So if you're not familiar with GMP, it means good manufacturing practices. And till now, only OTC and pharmaceutical manufacturers have been required uh, to comply. The purpose of it is to prioritize the quality and safety of production and operations. So GMP really involves things like standard operating procedures, placement and storage of materials, like, you know, you can't put something on the floor, for example, um, how you use water in production, what's the source of the water, how is it filtered, personal protective equipment for employees, checks and balances to making sure things are organoleptically tested, you know, that is involving, you know, looks and smell of the ingredient. Does it look off? Does it smell off? Is there things floating in there? Why is separating that type of thing? What is the process within your company? And that's part of the GMP practice. There is so much that goes into GMP compliance. It's a whole episode by itself. For more information on the good manufacturing practices as it relates to MOCRA, you can check out section 606 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act. Links, I will put links in the show notes, but I'll kind of talk about that more in detail now. Just to clarify, there's a lot of misconceptions around GMP status. And uh, while that's the thing is that there's no mandated third-party certification for GMP. It's always been volunteer-driven to get this third-party certification. So as a drug manufacturer, if I'm a drug manufacturer making OTCs, I don't have to go get third-party GMP tested. My FDA audit is basically proving that I'm GMP compliant. Whereas there are some people that just do cosmetics and then they might hire a third-party uh, person to come out to evaluate your facility and your processes and give you a certificate that you're GMP, but it's not required. Um, so if there's a company that's looking to hire you and they want to see proof that you're GMP, 
If you are an OTC manufacturer, you're just GMP. If you're not, then you might want to consider getting a third party uh, validation since, but, but now things have changed. Things are about to change. And I'll explain to you why you might not even need third party validation. Or maybe you do. We'll, we'll talk about it. But as far as cosmetics go, it's been a best practice, but not government mandated to be GMP compliant. So we've had two primary programs for consumer safety. We've had the FDNC, which is the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that started in 1938. And then we've had the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act that started in 1967. And basically this is to make sure that the products are labeled appropriately. So now here we are in mid-2023, and we find ourselves with a new act, a third one that has been passed that not many people know about, including manufacturers. This is a 36-page law that is called the Modernization of Cosmetic Regulation Act, also known as MOCRA. Reminds me of OCRA, but MOCRA. And this was enacted at the end of December 2022. It was buried in the nearly 4,200 page of the Consolidated Appropriations Act. They say they've been working on this for the past decade, but I think that's quite interesting given the fact that I've spoken to a few FDA investigators for cosmetic drugs and they haven't heard anything about it. To be quite honest, it doesn't seem realistic that the FDA will enforce this act via facility audit probably for the next 10 years. That's my guess, given the lack of FDA inspectors available. They're just, they're low staffed, so it just doesn't make sense. But hey, if you're looking for a job, I'm sure they will be hiring auditors in droves pretty soon. MOCRA will be managed by the FDA. So, uh, Basically, what that means is that it's up to the FDA to create the regulations for us all to comply with. And there's some few things that they're going to work on. What they consider GMP, the good manufacturing practice requirements for facilities and manufacturers of cosmetic products. They're going to create regulations around fragrance allergen labeling requirements and standardized testing methods for detecting and identifying asbestos and talc containing cosmetic products. MOCRA is the most significant compliance program for cosmetics that will shift the marketplace, the availability, and the pricing of cosmetics. But we'll talk more about that later. It's a very big concern of mine. So why does MOCRA exist, you ask? Well, as I mentioned, to date, there's been no oversight of cosmetic products in the marketplace, and the primary purpose is to ensure consumer safety and protection, as well as consumer transparency and good faith knowing that the product that you're using was made in a clean environment using unadulterated ingredients. So just in general, we all use on average about seven products a day and we're exposed to hundreds of chemicals. And unfortunately, <laughs> this is by choice, lots to think about. If you've known me for a while, you've likely heard me present on the topic of ingredient exposure risks, which is a concern for me and is part of my core values in my company. So while I have some concerns, I think the MOCRA thing is actually a great idea and will help us adopt higher standards and stay on par with the stricter guidelines that are really set forth by the European Union. I feel like we're kind of copying that them. So MOCRA applies only to the products being sold in the United States. So if you are a domestic manufacturer or a brand selling here, 
or even if you're manufacturing in another country but still selling your products in the United States, MOCRA applies to you. So you think everything would be planned out as far as how to comply, but sadly that's not the case. There are many questions and not enough answers for how this is going to play out. Yet the FDA has already set deadlines for compliance as soon as, as earliest as coming up December 2023. Yep, that's in five months. In June of this year, which was last month, I attended a public forum along with other manufacturers and global stakeholders. We all came together to express concerns to the FDA. They were The FDA is the one that posted the webinar. So we all expressed some concerns and questions to the FDA to which they've kind of documented all of our perspectives. But as of today, um, they have not yet reported any outcomes or answers, at least none that I've seen, um, even after attempting to reach out to their MOCA team. I'm going to talk you through some critical information that you need to know based on the information from the FDA that is available at this time. You may want to share this episode with your friends who have their own brands or are making products or considering making their own products. It's going to be one of those where we have to come together to support each other because every single one of y'all will have to do this. And yes, I just put in a text in y'all to tell you I'm serious, but don't freak out. I'm working on something juicy that will help you all make lemonade out of lemons. And I'll make that announcement in Q4. I'll break today's discussion into five notable topics to consider from the new MOCA regulation. Those five categories or five topics are facility and product registration, GMP and product safety testing, adverse event reporting and product recalls, labeling and product claims, and we will also discuss maybe who might be exempt from certain parts of MOCRA. I will also share some important deadlines. Throughout the discussion today, I will use terms and definitions designated by the FDA, but if you need further clarification, I will share some links in the show notes. I'm sure we will have many discussions on the podcast about MOCRA, and this is just the first, so please subscribe as I'll share more information about product compliance through this medium. You may also hear me identify specific section numbers as a reference point should your interest be to research the topic further. So let's begin the conversation uh, with registration. Up till now, there's been a program in place for cosmetic companies to voluntarily register their company and their products. It's through the VCRP or the Voluntary Cosmetic Registration Program from the FDA. This was never a requirement, it was strictly volunteer. Since they are starting the MOCRA mandates, as of March of this year, March 2023, they are no longer accessing or processing submissions from this volunteer registry. I've heard mixed messages whether or not the data from the volunteer registration program will be transferred over to the new MOCRA system, but my guess is that you will likely have to start the registration over in MOCRA. As of the time of this episode, the FDA continues to develop the submission programs for both facilities and products, and there is currently not a system or a portal that's ready, although they do promise to have a new system ready before the December 2023 deadline. I'll speak more on the deadlines later in the episode. But can you imagine the server and the website load to accommodate all the millions of products and brands? 
I digress. Okay, so let's talk about the two types of registrations that will be required. The first one is facility registration. The FDA defines facility as an establishment, including an establishment of an importer, if you're importing products. Um, so a facility is an establishment that manufactures or processes cosmetic products that are going to be distributed in the United States. Manufacturers and processors of raw materials, for example, must register their facilities with the FDA and renew their registration every two years. And you must be able to provide evidence that you're GMP compliant. Existing facilities have one year to comply with the facility registration, but if you're a new facility, you have 60 days once you've started to register. If I'm not mistaken, if you are a manufacturer or a processor, you'll be given a registration number that can be shared with customers who ask. That might be a thing of the future. Um, that is to screen your manufacturers based on their MOCA compliance by asking for their registration details. There hasn't been much discussion about this just yet, but I do anticipate this being a new thing. The FDA does have the authority to suspend your facility's registration. If they decide or determine that a cosmetic product that you're manufacturing or processing um, that's distributed in, in the United States has a reasonable probability of causing serious adverse health consequences or death to humans. And that's their quote. Um, so if they do identify you're making a product that may cause health consequences, they will also likely presume that other products manufactured or processed by your facility may be similar, similarly affected because of a failure that you might not be able to isolate to a product or a specific set of products. As far as I know, there has yet to be any discussion on fees or penalties or public write-ups, but let's just say that after they do come out to do an inspection and determine that your registration should be suspended, you will be prohibited from distributing or selling or otherwise creating new products in commerce that are cosmetic from your facility if they're being sold in the United States. If you are a reseller of a finished product made by a third-party manufacturer, like maybe it's somebody else's brand, or you have your own products made with your own labels made somewhere else, registering your facility does not apply to you. But if you are repackaging ingredients or blending partially completed products made by others in your own place, meaning you're opening up the product, you're mixing things, you're melting, you're pouring, then most definitely this applies to you. Contract manufacturers, such as myself, are subject to registration for their facility, and any changes that you do in your facility must be reported within 60 days. Again, where do we report? We don't know this yet, as the portal isn't ready. In other words, if you're buying bulk and repackaging and creating your own brand, this applies to you. Before we talk about product registration, let's discuss the term responsible person, as, you know, that's a quote, quote, responsible person, as this is an FDA MOCRA term that you'll become very familiar with in the next several months. According to the FDA, the responsible person is the manufacturer, the packer, or the distributor of a cosmetic product whose name appears on the label of the cosmetic product in accordance with the FDNC Act. This person is responsible and required to maintain records supporting adequate safety substantiation for those products. So let's continue on the scenario that you are private labeling a product. 
manufactured by someone else. Since it's your brand being sold, the brand is responsible for maintaining these records. Manufacturers can use relevant safety data that is already available to support the safety of the product. For example, safety data sheets and perhaps certificate of analyses. It's still very confusing in the case of private or white labelers as to who specifically is responsible for what or how data will be exchanged between the manufacturer and the private, label, private labeler. So as I get more information, I will share it with you, but this is an example of the type of questions we asked during the FDA webinar. So be thinking of who will be the responsible person to manage this for you. It may end up being a new hire who understands CUAs, SDSs, GMP guidelines, or it could be a third-party service. That's something I'm working on to help you guys. And for my company, my manufacturing company, we've been building this process into our best practices for the past several years. So of course we have to adapt and become fluent in the expectations of as new regulations arise. Um, but don't worry about uh, the unknowns at this time, because if it's your unknown, it's everybody else's unknown. Uh, so let's continue with product registration. Whoever you've identified as the responsible person, they must list each marketed cosmetic product with the FDA, including the product ingredients and provide any updates annually. Again, the system isn't ready yet, but for more specifics, it's in section 607 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act. So that's a big document where that MOCRA Act lives. So not only you have to register the product ingredients, you are probably gonna be required to submit documentation of each ingredient used in that formula. So you can see the collaboration that you're gonna have with your manufacturer. Again, still a lot of unknowns and a lot of definitions missing. But you should know that each product you make will require the submission of your product to be listed. Um, you'll need to list the ingredients, the responsible party, the facility where it's manufactured. And existing products have one year to comply with this listing submission. But if you're creating new products, you will have to submit within 120 days in the future. Meaning if I'm creating today, then I have 120 days to register that product. Although the system's not ready. I need to get confirmation on this and maybe it's product specific, but it's looking like products that have similar formulations, but with slight variations, like for example, it's the same lotion, but a different color or the same lotion, but a different scent. Um, you might not have to do these types of individual submissions, but we don't know yet. Under MOCRA, registering your facility and product listings are mandatory. However, there may be some ways to be exempt from either or both of these, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Are you guys with me so far? Okay, let's talk about GMP and product safety testing. According to the FDA, the term safety substantiation means that companies and individuals who manufacture or market cosmetic products have a responsibility to ensure that their products are safe. So check out section 608 for more details on safety substantiation. But essentially, um, it's a, you know, substantiating the safety of your product is now mandated. It's no longer implied as a cosmetic brand. Neither the law nor the FDA regulations require specific tests to demonstrate the safety of individual products, you know, finished formulations or individual ingredients. However, they still want you to test. So some examples of testing may include things like microbial testing. 
ingredient validation testing. Sometimes you hear it as assay validation testing. Although assay validation testing is uh, commonly used with OTCs. Or stability testing. Stability testing involves the shelf life. It involves, you know, whether or not your product's going to expand and break the bottle. Um, is it going to be affected by light and temperature? Uh, maybe even case studies can be part of this data. Um, maybe clinical testing. Your product might require additional research, um, especially if your formula is synthetic. You just want to make sure your product is safe, right? So that's the purpose here. I think the biggest ones are microbial testing, stability testing. Those are the hot ones. I don't want to put mold on my face. Okay, so the person who must do these tests have to be scientifically trained and qualified to perform the evaluations. Um, oftentimes you'll see this as a third-party company, but definitely don't do this in-house because in-house can lead to increased bias in the data outcomes. And I'm not sure the FDA will trust you if you're doing this as you know, in-house. They're they're, how are they going to validate if you're compliant to safety, if there's a potential of you changing the numbers? So there is some element of ingredient analysis from ingredient suppliers. And if you are a small manufacturer, you should always ask for a certificate of analysis. For you hemp folks out there, a COA or a C of A is not a potency test. You should always know how to read a potency test as a consumer, by the way, especially when it's cannabis hemp stuff. But I'll bring on a cannabis and hemp expert later to talk about this at some point. But anyway, the fact that the hemp industry is calling their potency test a COA has been really bothering me for some time. And I wish that whoever that is would change it. For some reason, COA has become a standard term in the hemp world to determine the percent of THC in a product and other cannabinoid ratios, but that's not what it is. A COA, or like I said, sometimes people call it C of A, is a chemical analysis report that can be performed on a single ingredient or it can be performed on a finished product to determine the components. Things like moisture, solubility, density, acidity, fatty acid content, extraction method, and so on. It will also give you the batch or lot number, the date of manufacturing and expiration. Note that the expiration usually does come from stability testing methods. Like I said, shelf type testing. However, this is usually more common to test for finished formulas rather than single ingredients. So I'm not quite sure how the shelf life is determined for like a lot of fresh olive oil, for example but they may generalize to say, okay, three years from the data processing, this is a common shelf life for this material. I don't know how or if MOCRA will apply to previous best practices for raw material processing. I'd be curious. Um, anyway, now onto the resp your responsibility for adverse event reporting and product recalls. Okay, so the FDA says that an adverse event is any health-related event associated with the use of that cosmetic product that is adverse. Meaning, does it create death? Does it create a life-threatening experience or require the person to have inpatient hospitalization? Does it create persistent or significant disability or incapacity? Uh, does it create a congenital anomaly or birth defect? Can it cause infection or can it create significant disfigurement, including serious and persistent rashes? Second or third degree burns, significant hair loss, which you know, I've seen that quite a bit in hair straightening products or relaxers, um, persistent or significant alteration of appearance, 
Does it require a medical or surgical intervention to prevent the outcome, such as death? That's crazy. Imagine. But there are products out there like this. So remember that responsible person we talked about earlier that's required to report serious adverse events associated with the use of this product? Especially, well, specifically if it's sold in the United States. You have 15 days after receiving that complaint um, to get additional information such as medical outcomes. And then you have, you have to report this within one year of the initial report. You have to come back to the FDA and tell them the outcome after one year. So part of your GMP requirement is to have a process for complaint reporting and documentation. This should be standard. And you must maintain safety records that can be accessed by the FDA when they come and do their audit or if they ask for it. You can get more information about records in mandatory recall in section 610 and 611. I'll give you an example. We have a form that we fill out if a customer complains about something that could potentially be considered an adverse event. We've never had to use it, but we have it. And this is what it kind of involves. It has information about the product, like the lot number, the situation, the claim that the person is making, um, method of resolution, the attempts for communication and what was said in each method of communication, proof that we obtained the product back. We have to document how it was stored and how we did the testing and how we followed through uh, from each ingredient supplier because we keep batch records, right? And the batch record identifies the supplier, the lot number, the ingredient. And so this form also, we have to document the batch information. So also on this form, we talk about the outcome. Um, this type of document or template will be part of your FDA audit and inspection. Regardless if you have to use it or not, you have to have it. The fact that you have one ready for issue mitigation as part of your GMP, um, you know, you have to have it ready in, in case somebody wants to look at it, the FDA wants to look at it. Um, you'll likely get written up or fined if you don't have one. So depending on the process for complaints, you may determine that a recall may be necessary. So the FDA um, is developing a process for submitting mandatory adverse events for reporting cosmetics. Until this is ready, if you need to make a report, you can submit it to their safety reporting portal uh, to access the portal. I put some details in the show notes. For more information on adverse events um, and what to do, check out section 605. Brands are also mandated to report serious adverse events. So if you're creating a lipstick or a face cream or a lotion or whatever, um, and a customer complains to you and like they said their arm fell off, uh, you have to, as the brand, have to report. You don't go back to your manufacturer. You, the brand, have to report it. And as mentioned before, you must maintain safety records that can be accessed by the FDA. So the FDA will also have the ability to recall those cosmetics. Um, for many reasons, they can do a recall, including that that product could cause serious harm to consumers or to ensure the proper labeling of a product. So most of the time, at least right now, up till now, in the cosmetic world, the FDA can do a product recall if your product is misbranded or mislabeled. So improper labeling is a huge problem for both cosmetics and supplements. The FDA does call this, quote, misbranding. Um, we'll have an episode on that at another time. But as a quick example, misbranded can be making a claim that your CBD topical helps joint pain. And adulterated means um, you can be adding an ingredient that's not listed or by exposing it to conditions that might cause contamination.
What you should know now is that if the FDA determines that there is a reasonable probability that your cosmetic product is adulterated or misbranded, and the use of or the exposure to the cosmetic will cause serious adverse health consequences or death, they do have the authority to order a mandatory recall um, if the responsible refu person refuses to do so voluntarily. The cost of getting all your product back from all the store locations is incredibly expensive. So now you've just interrupted your, your sales efforts on all the locations you're selling. You have to have the expense of having it all returned or disposed of. You have to show proof that it was returned or disposed of. It's a big mess. And then your, uh, your retailer is left trying to figure out how to fill the shelves now because your product is, um, is recalled. I mean, you guys have seen recalls before, so you know what it's like. All those FDA notices you see on LinkedIn about company being in trouble is more than likely a misbranding issue. So this is a big no-no that can cause serious fines. Anyway, so under MOCRA, you are required to be available to accept reports of adverse events through your address, your telephone number, or electronic contact. And this information should be listed on your labels, meaning... You must make it easy for a customer to communicate with you. When you receive an adverse event report, you must submit it to the FDA within 15 days and any subsequent updates given to you within one year must also be reported within 15 days. Companies must maintain adverse reports, uh, adverse event reports for six years. Remember, the FDA can do a mandatory recall if they find your product poses a public health risk, even if you do not agree. According to the FDA, if certain conditions are met, they can have access to copy and keep any records you have uh, related to this particular product in question, including any safety records. So check out section 3504, which gives, uh, how, you know, gives the FDA the ability to inspect records as needed. In the act, in section 614, they talk about preemption, which I didn't even know this was a thing, but basically it means that MOCRA preempts state or local laws if it differs from the FDA framework as it relates to your registration, your product listing, your GMP, your records, recalls, any adverse event reporting, and safety substantiation. So I didn't realize that states had like local rules that they were, I had no idea. Anyway, while I've never had any product recalls myself, don't be surprised if your FDA investigator asks to make copies of your SOPs or other documentation, including receipts for transactions. Don't be surprised if they take some of your product to document its packaging. This happened to me, even though I wasn't flagged for anything, but they try to keep documentation on you and they submit it back to their main office. Okay, let's move on to product labeling and claims. Making claims on your packaging that a product will help rosacea or wrinkles or itchy skin or pain, these are all classified as drugs according to the FDA. If you're making those claims, you are making an OTC. And if you are making an OTC, you must comply with OTC guidelines. And that means you are now making and selling a drug. There's a whole list of things that goes along with that. And <laughs> it's kind of difficult. And I I don't recommend you going down that rabbit hole unless you have lots of money because that will put you out of business if you're a small business. Trust me, I know. <laughs> okay, to even say that a product conditions, like using the word conditions the skin, it's still classified as a drug. The reason being, 
If the product changes the structure of the skin or provides some aid or relief to any medical condition, you're making a drug. So the FDA has been tracking down on this. And in this circumstance, they would identify their product as being misbranded, which you've heard now already. So what happens if you go through an audit and they determine that your cosmetic product is misbranded? Well, on first offense, they give you an opportunity to correct the issue. You will still be written up, most likely publicly, but you won't likely be fined yet. If there are customer complaints on your product, that's an entirely different issue. It also depends on how many products you have that are misbranded. You won't believe how many products are out there that are saying that they will cure cancer, that will cure cancer. If grandiose claims like that are made, don't be surprised if you immediately get fined, get shut down, um, have your all of your inventory taken out of your place without any opportunity to address the issue. You'll most likely will get product, have a forced product recall as well. If they say, um, if they determine like, you know, it's just an honest mistake, it was unintentional um, and you're still learning and you're willing to take responsibility and fix the issue, the FDA will be more lenient. If you don't respond to them after they write you up, you're in for public humiliation. And if you're following this kind of stuff on LinkedIn, you'll see, you'll see it. When you're written up by the FDA, you have to respond back in writing on your mitigation and remediation efforts in order to address that, you know, how you're going to address the issue and your timeline for doing it. If you have been caught on misbranding again, you will be fined, your inventory will be confiscated, um, and you might have to do product recall. When I talk about FDA audit, when you hear me say FDA audit, this means that they likely will do a surprise visit to your facility. But you can also be put on their radar for audit if a consumer or a customer complains, or if they see you are misbranding your products on your website, or misbranding your products in person, um, which I see quite often at farmer's markets. Yeah, they're small folks, but man, are they doing things illegally. The way it works is the investigators are usually assigned a list of companies each year to investigate. So in most cases, it's random unless you've been flagged. Um, so I'll bring on FDA investigators in future episodes so you can kind of hear from their perspective how it all works. Let's talk about labeling. And you can get more information in this section uh, 609. I will have a separate episode about product labeling according to FDA regulations for both cosmetic and OTC labeling, but at a high level for now under MOCRA, there are a couple of changes to the existing labeling requirements. So before, um, you were required to put full addresses on your labels, but now they're saying, okay, well, electronic contact information is being added as an option if you wanted to use that. Um, remember, the rules were originally drafted in 1938, so before the advent of the internet and websites and Google. So, of course, they you put the physical address, but now you can put your website. Um, I'm not sure if social media alone is um, acceptable. Um, also, usually they require you to put your phone number. So, fragrance allergens must also be outlined on the label. This is something new, so the FDA must issue their proposed plan and establish the threshold levels for compliance within 18 months of enactment and the issue final and will issue a final rule within 180 days after the public comment period or the proposed rule closes but it's likely that again that they will be doing something similar to what the european union requires for allergen disclosure rules 
After all, back in 1999, the European Union determined 26 fragrances out of some like 2,500 that are, are considered allergens. So these fragrances are not only in cosmetics, but also household products. So yeah, with Mokra, label rules will likely be acknowledging the same allergens. There are so many potential allergen ingredients in products that are synthetically produced as well as naturally produced, like talc as a natural mineral. Let's have an episode about that sometime. So natural products aren't always safe either because of percentages of essential oils. Some can be considered allergens. Some preservatives aren't, could be natural um, which can be very harmful. Um, so, you know, for, for us, I like to use synthetic preservatives because there's more stability and safety. I care about the safety first, as should your product, your, your manufacturer. Um, yes, some people aim to be 100% natural, and, you know, that's great and all, but if it's risking the safety to the consumer, you, you, you're not being ethical, in my opinion. So if you have to put 1% in a preservative that's synthetic in your natural product, you should do that. Uh, we can talk about that another time. So the first update to labeling under Mocra is allowing you to put your website and other socials, possibly even your email address instead of your full address. And the second is uh, disclosing allergens to fragrance. The last update is for professional use products. You must identify that those products are for licensed professionals and you have to put that on the label. Um, in addition to being compliant with the other labeling requirements, you have to put on the label for licensed professionals only. This kind of bothers me a little bit because I create professional use products for other brands and professional use can really mean two things. One, professional use can be a, a stronger potency of an active ingredient, which should be administered by trained professionals. So yes, that makes sense that the FDA wants to go this direction. For example, I personally would use like a 50% lactic acid on my face, and that's without a doubt professional use, but they currently retail that to anyone I can buy it on Amazon. In my opinion, if something is a stronger potency, doesn't that now make it an OTC? I'm really wondering about this. I think there might be OTC crossover here. It's still unclear. Hope the FDA defines this better. But more often than that, professional use can imply simply the size of the bottle. What an average person wouldn't go buy a 64 ounce or a gallon of a product. To me, professional use can also include people who use the product in a service. So like if you're a massage therapist, you would have a professional use massage oil, meaning a larger container, simply that. So far, the FDA hasn't really addressed this. And if you're in the spa industry, this is often called back bar. So back bar sizing. Again, all this is to offer transparency to the public and the customer and allows them to build trust with the brand. So, uh, you know, if you're demonstrating that you're compliant with Mokra, you probably would have a following, a uh, loyal brand following. But, you know, this is a good marketing tactic for your brand now, especially if you're kind of uh, an early adopter and you can use this in your marketing and come to market faster with a Mokra compliance. Eventually, everyone's going to be compliant, so it's not going to mean much at some point. But hey, there you go. All right. There are so many rules associated with Mokra, and I just touched on the surface in this episode. Perhaps as the FDA defines things better, we can break episodes up by category so we can go into more detail. Although not really defined yet, it looks as though there may be exemptions for various levels of compliance if you're a small business. 
But how does the FDA define a small business? Well, I don't think they figured it out yet. Although I have heard a few things. Um, one source said if your average gross annual sales is less than $2 million a year. One said less than 50000 per year. And another said if your average gross annual sales for the past three years is less than $1 million, you can be exempt. The latter is where I bet they'll land as I've seen more reference to this than the other numbers. Um, they say, though, that if you're a small business seeking exemption, you can't make cosmetics that come in contact with mucous membranes in the eye. If cosmetics that are injected, I guess it's like Botox. I'm not sure what else would be injected. Um, products that are for internal use or alter the appearance for more than 24 hours. I don't know why, but I think of skin tanning stuff that, that, that comes to mind. If you are making OTCs, Mocha does not apply to you. If you are making OTCs and cosmetics, like we were, like I am, have been, then yes, Mocha applies to your cosmetics as well. Another one of my questions is, if someone is registered as an OTC manufacturer, do they have to use the different system to register their company again or in their products? There are various deadlines for registering your company and products. However, it looks like since this is all a new thing, they will probably offer special considerations for small businesses, of course, based on the size and their budget, and maybe even give you longer timelines to become compliant. Although I do anticipate that the FDA uh, will be setting parameters and definitions over time, there are so many new things coming up in this MOCRA Act that's making me uneasy, especially if you're not the size of Procter & Gamble and Estee Lauder and L'Oreal, who dominate this space of personal care and cosmetics. They have the budget, they have the resources to hire people to do each piece of administration and quality assurance, whereas most of the time small businesses, one person has to wear many hats. So one of my concerns, for example, is testing of ingredients. So not only does your supplier have to test the in ingredients, but once it arrives to your facility in preparation for production, you must also test it, again, for microbial growth and contamination. This seems unreasonable if you're a small company. I personally have, I don't know, well over 300 ingredients. If I have to go and test each of those things, plus test the finished product, what, what's the point of having a business? It's a, it's a freaking nightmare. Another concern as a contract manufacturer who also has their own brand that often does small batch product runs, how is it feasible to afford sending off each product from each batch to test? Not only is this a financial burden, but it's also a time burden and a resource burden. I can't grow my business. I'm, I'm spending all my time trying to deal with all these hoops and things that I have to jump over to get, uh, to get my product tested. Not only that, but you have to wait for results before you can sell your product. So there are so many unanswered questions. Hopefully we can get clarity in Q4 this year as the FDA rolls out their registration system, which nobody seems to know what's going on with that. The cost with this compliance will be a huge impact on small business and may deter them for participating in commerce. Like, why would you spend all this time and effort and money and it might just like prevent you from like change your business idea, you know? Um, I'm not gonna lie, this regulation will most definitely impact my business in ways that are unknown at this time, but I am a little nervous. I'm not sure, um, maybe, maybe I overlooked it somewhere, but I'm not sure if they're gonna be charging companies to register your products and your company. 
my guess is they will. Some other things to consider. The FDA is now issuing regulations for products and packaging that contain PFAS. You've heard, I'm sure you've heard of PFAS by now. That's per fluoral alkyl substances or polyfluoral alkyl substances. While PFAS were first used in the 40s in products like stain and water resistant fabrics and carpeting and cleaning products and paint and nonstick cookware and foams that come out of your fire, you know, like your fire extinguishers. And you guessed it. Yeah. Yeah. PFAS are in personal care products like shampoo, dental floss, nail polish, and eye makeup. Great. Lovely. According to greensciencepolicy.org, um, they collaborated with the University of Notre Dame and University of Toronto and Indiana University and ETH Zurich. They tested 231 popular makeup products purchased in the United States and Canada. And they found high fluorine levels, which basically indicates the probable, probability of PFAS in just over half of the products, half of those products. They said the highest levels were especially prevalent in waterproof mascara, liquid lipsticks, and foundations. Some of the products with the highest fluorine levels underwent, it's not fluoride, guys, it's fluorine, levels underwent further analysis and were all confirmed to contain at least four PFAS of concern. They even said that the majority of the products with high fluorine included those um, that said that they did not have PFAS on the label. They, they have PFAS, but it's not listed on the label. Pretty crazy stuff. So PFAS are essentially chemicals that resist grease, oil, water, and heat. And uh, so why do PFAS matter? They've been associated with cancer, infertility, reduced vaccine effectiveness, and more. So the MOCA requirement is to immediately remove PFAS from products. This should also be considered for the packaging itself, not just the formulation. As you know, talc, as we mentioned earlier, has been on the forefront of product scares. According to uh, the British medical journal, Johnson & Johnson has had 40,000 lawsuits in the United States alleging that baby powder contaminated with asbestos caused ovarian cancer and mesothelioma. So yes, this is another MOCR mandate to ban talc from products. The FDA must issue regulations requiring testing methods for detecting asbestos in talc-containing products. Um, so I'm not sure. It's a little confusing whether talc is actually being banned or if they're going to require products with talc to be tested. It's confusing. Guys, a good natural substitution for talc is cornstarch, which is what Johnson & Johnson, Johnson & Johnson is switching over to, or kale and clay, arrowroot powder, tapioca starch. Those are all very good, very safe. To learn more about talc and PFAS and cosmetic regulations, check out sections 3505 and 3506. The last thing to consider, and this one I'm super happy about, is MOCRA is setting a new rule against animal testing. So check out section 3507. While in some other countries, which I shall not mention, they require products to be tested on animals. I'm happy to announce that it's never been a requirement here in the United States to be tested for your product to be tested on animals before you put it in commerce. Um, so they are officially banning it, which gets me super excited. Can you believe that just six months ago, only 10 US states banned the sale of products that have been tested on animals? Only six. 
So as of December 2022, according to the Humane Society of the United States and CNN, the states that are uh, have banned products being sold that have been tested on animals are Virginia, California, Louisiana, New Jersey, Maine, Hawaii, Nevada, Illinois, Maryland, and the last one was New York. I'm not sure when there no animal testing will be enforced, but have you guys heard anything? To learn more about the ban on animal testing, check out section 3507 in the act. So hopefully everything I've talked about so far will give you a good idea of what's to come. At this point, I would encourage you to read up on the new laws, but you can always check back here for more updates as I'll be creating episodes as new data comes up. You are all witnessing history with this new MOCA regulation. And at this point, all we can do is sit back and wait for FDA to figure out what they're going to do with the tools and how they're going to implement these changes. But before we wrap up, let's talk about some dates and deadlines that you should know. For December 29, 2023, you must register your cosmetic manufacturing facility and you must register all of your cosmetic products. Um, MOCRA will require companies to ensure that record keeping to support adequate substantiation of safety for your product is submitted as well. So you must prove that your product is safe. How are you going to do that? Good question. It could be COAs. Um, it could be information that comes from your manufacturer. It could be your product testing like we talked about, microbial stability testing. And of course, your deadline for December 2923 is to, uh, you're going to be required at that point to start reporting all serious adverse events within 15 days of being notified by your consumer. By December 29, 2024, one year from the first deadline, you will have to have all your new labeling updated on your packaging. So that means phone number, electronic contact information, any language related to your fragrance allergens that we talked about, um, if it's professional use, that sort of thing that we talked about earlier. And then one year from that date, by December 29, 2025, GMP guidelines will be established. And if you are already a manufacturer in this world, you might be familiar with ISO 22716 that was established in 2007. It's basically GMP regulation, a good manufacturing practice a program um, that they're trying to get everyone to be compliant with. I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong, I'm sure somebody will correct me, that European manufacturers are compliant with ISO 22716. But I'm, I'm not 100%. Um, but you will have to have proof that you are GMP compliant by December 29, 2025. So today we talked about the new Modernization of Cosmetic Regulation Act, abbreviated as MOCRA, and how it will most definitely impact your processes and your business. We went over some highlights from the act, including facility and product registration, GMP and product safety testing. We talked about adverse event reporting and product recalls labeling and product claims. We talked about who may be exempt as well as some ingredient bans that are coming up. You now have some dates to keep in mind. If you have questions or comments about the content you heard here today, please reach out to me. I will personally respond to you as long as you're 
legit. <laughs> and my email address is dahlia at makingittomarket.com. If you have questions you want me to ask the FDA for you, um, we can send the questions in for you. If you're like me, you've probably taken a few deep breaths listening to the news in this episode. But don't worry, you're not alone. And I'm working on something big that will help you with this transition so you can focus on your business and not the regulatory chaos that's about to hit us. Please subscribe to this Making It to Market podcast to keep current on Mocra. you enjoyed today's show. If you did, please subscribe to Making It to Market wherever you listen to podcasts or listen from our website, makingittomarket.com. Thank you for your honest five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. And a special thanks to our show sponsors and listeners. Without your support, I would not be able to do this. If there's a topic you'd like to hear, have a question or even a comment you'd like for me to address, feel free to leave me a voice message on our podcast phone line. If we air your question or comment in an upcoming episode, we'll send you a free Making It to Market t-shirt or mug. Details are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Until the next time, make decisions that make a difference.